You're fed up with a 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from a traditional career but don't know how? Business Breaks is here to help. Subscribe now and rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Business Breaks, a podcast where we deep dive into the world of finance and business transformation. Today, I am thrilled to welcome back a very special guest, David Safir. Now, David is not just a globally recognized expert in cash flow optimization. He is also the innovative mind behind the Cash is Clear learning system. His work has revolutionized the way accountants and CFOs approach cash flow and profit maximization for their clients. And as the founder and CEO of this pioneering system, David has been instrumental in educating finance professionals through his cash flow advisory certification program, as well as various mastermind groups. His expertise doesn't stop at teaching. He's a beacon of knowledge and experience in the finance profession frequently featured in hundreds of articles and sought-after speaker on the international stage. To quote the, the well-known saying, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, but cash is reality. This underscores the critical importance of cash flow, a subject that David has mastered and continues to explore with passion and depth. His previous experience on our show left us very enlightened and eager for more and today we're set to dive in even deeper into the nuances of cash flow optimization and how it intersects with the challenges of digital transformation in business. So without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to David Safir. David, it's fantastic to have you back on Business Breaks. Dante, it's wonderful to be back with you, and I'm really excited. You sent me questions in advance. I'm going, oh, wow. These are great, really insightful questions. David, it's an honor. And I, I've certainly, I know my audience and certainly me, we've, both, we've all been looking forward to your insights on this critical aspect of business finance. So I guess to get the ball rolling, can you tell us about your journey and how you became an expert in cash flow optimization, specifically within the realm of digital transformation? Well, I'll, I'll try to make it concise, but it was actually a 35-year journey hmm. because cash flow is not a it, – it, it can be measured very easily from one week to the next. It's the difference between your bank balance statement at the beginning of one time period to the end of a future time period, hmm. and which could be a week, I just said, or a day or a month or a year. However, the concepts of how many different things impact cash flow and how has been a long-term journey. And I'll tell you the first exposure that I had, and it came in two different ways. I was working at a small manufacturer and they were in financial trouble. Now, my job was to help a gentleman take what was in his mind and transfer it onto a simple spreadsheet so he could do a lot more estimates in a lot less time. And so that made me help. And he was afraid of losing his job. And so it helped me to help him say, no, this is so you can do more with less time. We can get more business in and become more efficient. So that's conceptually increasing your cash flow through reducing costs or becoming more efficient on for him and getting more money in the door. Both of those are cash flow oriented topics. But I was also, so the, 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 the big exposure really to the fundamentals of measuring your cash, and this was on a day-to-day -day basis, came because my father was the owner of the company. And he and his controller would sit down every single day and estimate, okay, this is what came in. This is our beginning balance today. How much do we think is going to come in? Which results in how much, how many of the bills can we pay today to try to keep the doors open, literally. Mm. And so I learned what a cash flow spreadsheet was at a fairly young age. I think I was 23. 
And I just figured that's how all people run their businesses. And it, it impacted my thoughts going forward. Those two things, the concept, but also the hard cash, I was able to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn until I finally synthesized everything that I'm doing starting about four years ago. Brilliant. And you mentioned hard, hard in that statement. And what I relate to with cash is it's not hard. It's not just hard. It's tangible. It's real, real benefit. It's also energy. It's so there's two words, cash and flow. So cash is the asset, I guess. And flow is the liquid nature of it that it comes in. It flows in, flows out. And that's amazing. And as you say, You'd be surprised a lot of companies that don't really put that emphasis on their cash flow. And probably a lot of them do tend to struggle because of that lack of focus. Dante, I think you're forgetting who who, who you're talking to. No, it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> no, what what is still shocking to me is mm-hmm. not the business owners. And I, keep in mind, I work with small, medium-sized businesses large corporations have whole treasury departments. They don't call them the cash flow department, but that's what they are. It's treasury. It's a very specific job skill. But what shocks me to no end, and I'm sorry if you're an accountant listening to this, if you're somebody in the financial industry, is the lack of attention paid by the accounting industry to cash flow. That, you know, if cash is king, then act like it. Mm-hmm. And they don't. They, what their God is accrual-based accounting. And that's smoke and mirrors. I'm sorry. It was formed for big companies that, if I remember correctly, my accounting history, the ships would leave Italy and a monk figured out how to keep track of all the costs and how to do this accrual-based stuff and depreciation because the ships only last for 10 years and and figured out so a bunch of shareholders can get their return at the end of the voyage. Hmm. What does that have to do with the small business, whether it's in it's in the United Kingdom, in the United States, or anywhere else in the world? Sorry, I get on a soapbox about that. That's shocking to me. No, I I, I agree. And it's funny in in I'm going back on my experience on corporate finance. There's essentially two strings. And as you mentioned, Treasury who are specifically focused on money's in, money's out, and then sources of financing outside of just the operating profit. But yeah, even with the the financial analysis side of the business in corporate finance, because there's this segregation, and unless you work for a small business or even a medium-sized business, which is, I guess I was fortunate in that regard to have started out my career getting the overview because I did everything. <laughs> but um, in in large corporates, you find that there's accounting and then there's FP&A or financial or management accounting, commercial accounting, which is what they were in my day. But yeah, they, they tend to have accountants focusing on the balance sheet, finance focusing on the P&L, but you know, both of them not really focused on cash because they have their different perspectives and missing that third perspective occasion more often than not because, yeah, it, it wasn't a holistic view. But, I mean, there were certainly, when it all rolled up at the executive levels, then the you, you'd like to think the seniors had, the, had their eye on the ball, and a lot of the times they did. But it was very hard for the person, people, and teams beneath them to get the holistic picture, especially in, if you're in a large organization, you end up, specializing without really not always getting the context of the wider business so it does become very hard and i can see how easy it is to lose that focus which i guess segues into the next topic of the conversation which is digital transformation and i think a lot of the time it's there's two value drivers or two basic groups of value drivers it's growing your revenues or reducing your costs but I guess it would be good to get your take on the cash flow element. What are the key elements of cash flow optimization in digital product projects? And why do you think it's so crucial? Well, that's a great question, Dante. There's a 
crucial time in every company's life cycle. And mm-hmm. within a, an organization, it's not the entire organization that's going to go to digital from manual to digital all at once, but each department and each, and even you could even say individual job functions can transform. And there, to me, there's two or three, four different things that come to mind. Number one, and this isn't good for people, possibly, but it's, it's a reality. If you have 10 people doing a job manually and you can replace that with digitization where they get 5x productivity, in theory, you could let go 80% of your workforce, in this case, eight people, and the other people can carry on with the same amount of productivity. Sorry, not productivity, but results. Yeah, yeah. Usually yeah. different, much more product productive. Um, but I like to be optimistic and say where that is is the opportunity for that 5x productivity to then accelerate the company into new levels of productivity and results in significantly more sales and perhaps even they don't get any additional sales. So this is where cash flow really becomes interesting. They might say, we don't want to get more sales. We, we are maximizing our volume in our factory, whatever the factory is. And that could be people doing accounting. It could be people cleaning offices. What we do is what we want to do is go bid on more jobs so we can get the highest possible margin. Mm. And you have to, and I'm just making this up, but by doing 5x the volume of bids, you can find and bid on the ones that say, great, we will accept a higher margin and literally start transforming your company by picking up higher margin clients and dropping the lower margin clients. Mm. And because you've got more productivity, you can afford to keep the, the same number of people you need to 5x improvement to be able to do the number of bids. Making this up, but it illustrates the transformative nature of of going from digital to, sorry, manual to digital. I, I get carried away. I'm sorry. That's one aspect of it. Okay. Increasing margins because you've got the capacity to do more bids. But but here's some, I'll just give you some really easy hard costs. I already said you can you can cut people. You can you can grow your capacity, and mm-hmm. therefore bring in more revenue. And yes, I always go for high margin revenue instead of low margin revenue. But that's a that's a that's a mindset, not a direct function of the transformation, unless that's part of your goal of the transformation. Th- those are two key things, or the three or four things I just mentioned are key. That's brilliant. And yeah, it's it's something that the challenge is always going to be, especially for accountants who aren't really familiar with sales, in my opinion, that it's so much easier to cut costs than grow revenues, just conceptually. And if you're looking to, as as you say in your example, reduce through automation the amount of manual work that needs to be performed, it's easier for a lot of businesses to think, well, let's just realize the benefit by cutting the staff rather than thinking, well, how do we redeploy them so that we can generate more revenue, more margin, win more work? And that's something that probably isn't really looked at thorough often enough is where's the opportunity beyond just cost cutting? And yeah, yeah, I think... Um, that's a great point you raise, and um, and I think that's probably something a lot of finance and accounting people, myself included, when I was doing accounting, wouldn't have thought of. It's always been, <laughs> and and this is my 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 experience of business. We have as we we budget based on a sales target. More often than not, the sales target is missed, and then we end up having to look at our costs and figure out how to align it so we can keep our profits. So. It yeah. usually goes to discretionary spend, which if you if you defer too long, like if you reduce your marketing, 
you know it's going to eat into your long-term revenue growth as well and all you end up doing is potentially taking actions that <laughs> damage you even further until you can right that ship so i guess have you seen any changes in how digital transformation has reshaped traditional approaches to cash flow management well that's there's two questions in that question i don't know if you realize it or not hmm. one is have is digital formation transformation outside the accounting finance area yeah done, like i just said estimating and you could think of other areas of, of digital transformation in a company yes obviously that impacts cash flow but what comes to mind here is are there automation products for cash flow yeah and the answer is yes. But uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of really bad products out there, not what I would call cash flow products. Mm-hmm. Could, could you imagine going in and using a piece of software that said, okay, we're going to look at all of your receivables and all of your payables, and maybe we can even automate your ongoing expenses, right? Because HR, your payroll isn't payable. It's more of an ongoing expense. Mm-hmm. And we'll project out your cash flow and you're out of business in two to three months when you stop, when you stop having money come in or money's not going out anymore. And that's what so many of the cash flow products do. And for mm-hmm. those of you on audio, I just put cash flow products in quotes because in my mind, they're not. They are cash projection products that go out as long as you've got receivables coming in. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a warning to people who are looking for this type of software. What you're looking for really is cash flow and business modeling where you, where you have to do modeling where your receivables and payables drop off and predict the future. And there's very few software packages out there that do this. And the one, the only one I've seen for small business accounting, which would be like QuickBooks online, would be Dry Run. Sorry, this is not a paid. You can cut that out. Yeah. It's not okay. Um, no, no. Me yeah. to say that, but it's the only one I see that actually attaches to QuickBook and provides business modeling. Mm. Okay. But then on the other hand, let me tell you, the vast majority of people still use spreadsheets, which is a type of automation that you have a lot of manual modeling and then manual input. Mm. However, let me tell you what the most important thing is. It's not the software. And this, it, it, it is not which package. It's not a spreadsheet versus you know, a piece of software that you plug into your accounting software. It's the space between your ears and what you do with that information once it's visible to you. And that's coming from somebody who's also an expert in this field. His name is Jeremy Burke. And go like him on LinkedIn. He's a great guy. He knows a lot about cash flow and he knows a lot about the business of accounting. He worked for into it for years. Hmm. And he also worked for a, so- a software company that, that, that did cash flow. And he'd recommend people to me. He'd say, David, people are buying our software. They have no idea of what to do with it once they found the numbers. Mm-hmm. And you help them out. And so that's what I do is I train people on strategies and techniques. So it's a long answer because we're not anywhere close to being there from a modeling perspective but even when we get there, doing something with the information is dead in the water from a digitization standpoint right now. Makes sense. And and that was a wow, mic drop moment, I think. <laughs> because it's not about, you can have all the tools in the world. It's not about that. It's about the mindset and the thought process going behind how you're commercially driven towards understanding how your business functions and how that translates into your your cash in your business right 
When you do a digital transformation project, mm -hmm. you have a blueprint that you've already invented in your mind, correct? Yeah. Who developed the blueprint? The software, the software company, or you and the other brilliant people that you're working with? Exactly. Yeah. It, it all stems from a pain point that is conceived by the executive sponsor. And I'm going, sorry for titles because it, it comes back to my background in corporate finance. But yeah, it's usually the CFO or CEO who drives a massive transformation program because there's a benchmark and or there's a massive change that's come through business transitions, even Brexit, that required a huge transformation, mm -hmm. which we worked on. And um, and that, that driver usually requires some form of adaptation to the new normal, which a lot of the time it can be digitalization. It can just be restructuring and reorganizing, so consolidating what we already do, but doing it in different teams. So another kind of benefit is wage arbitrage, where you outsource work from a high cost location to a low cost location. Again, that's all a that's a whole other discussion. But I think coming back to that point is really every and this is something I I I am actually surprised about how many how many projects actually get approved on the basis of soft benefits. And really you need to be thinking how even if it's based on assumptions. You need to be able to map out some path to a tangible return on investment, especially when you're looking at most business cases do assume that you have a net present value calculation behind it, which means your initial investment and the ongoing costs let, uh, offset against the eventual benefits which which come in over maybe a couple of years after you started the project can be up to that long. Yeah. Let me ask you something. When you think of soft costs, what are you thinking of? Give me some examples. So increased morale, automation, so more time saved, so people have fewer days sickness, that sort of thing. Maybe speed, speed to implementation, which is always based on an estimate and doesn't necessarily translate into a actual monetary value, but then there is the time-saving, being able to respond more quickly to changes in the market. I think a lot of it is because it's based on projections. You know you're going to get an improved performance, but you don't know what that improved performance will translate to when it actually gets deployed to the market. Yeah, versus versus you know you're going to spend X dollars less on electricity yeah. because you're not using you're using a digital machine instead of a hydraulic machine, right? Mm -hmm. I, I've done that type of digital transformation as well in a factory where you're you're literally cutting pieces out of sheet metal as opposed to punches. Okay, so great. So soft costs. I happen to disagree with soft costs the way you've said it, that they're not tangible. And the mm -hmm. reason why is this. Now, I'm going to put in a plug for my brother, Dr. Richard Safir. He wrote a book for a cure for the common company. And it's about well-being and wellness in a company and an organization. And he and I have talked extensively about this. That is, there is a hard cost to employee absenteeism. And it's measurable. And mm -hmm. job satisfaction is a key part of that. It's, it's real sickness. It's mental health. And it is just mental health days, which is like, I, I just got to take a break. I'm sick. But you're, what you're really saying, what you really need is just time, stress. But also what happens in a high stress environment is employee turnover. And we saw that, gee, I don't know if they had that in the UK, the, the great walkout where people are just quitting their jobs. Great resignation. Was great it? resignation, yeah. Did you guys yeah. have that also? All right. I think and there so, was something like that and where people were looking for better pay jobs. Yes. Yeah. And for whatever, better or worse, the perception is I can do better elsewhere. You're not meeting my needs.
So this is all part of employee wellness. I would suggest, not just suggest, there are measurables that if you have any kind of pulse on your workforce about their level of satisfaction, there are mm. direct correlations between engagement and satisfaction at work and absenteeism. So if mm. you have any kind of hope uh, that a project will increase well-being, you can calculate the cost. Now, you're going to have to wait and measure it later, but I would hypothesize it's the same thing for the hard costs that you're estimating because it's just that it's an estimate of going from manual punch machines to a you know laser-driven, high-pressure water metal cutting thing that's run by two people that can do the job of five because you don't really know the results. You think you're going to get, you know, let's just call it a thousand, but at the end of the day, you might only get 500. And it's the same thing on the soft costs. You really don't know on the hard costs nor the soft costs until you measure them later. Uh, Definitely agree with you there. And it's ironic, right? Because in my experience, I've had people who've, who've experienced pressure I've led teams where we had people leave for other jobs in other companies, took us ages to <laughs> replace them, and the work was in, ended up absorbed between the remaining workforce, and we had months of, say, filled positions because it took so long to actually get the approval or get someone to backfill a position. On our budget, we were doing well because we were saving costs, but what it meant was reduced output and also more stressed employees, including myself as the manager at the time. So, And you're doing these heroics, but they're not sustainable over the long term, not without severe like process re-engineering and automation. But if you just force it on people and expect them just to pick up the slack, it's counterproductive. I completely agree with you. And what is the cost of losing a person? There's a hard cost, lost productivity. I'm sorry, you can't do the four people can't do the work of five. It's just, yeah. But there was probably search costs. What were the costs for HR to go out and do that? What were your costs for interviewing people? What were the costs of bringing somebody on board, outfitting them, and then getting them up to speed, the training time that takes? of lost productivity, lost productivity. And there's the hard cost. If you had to pay a recruiter, that costs a lot of money. And there's a hard, hard, hard cost of employee turnover. And it's it's astronomical. And most companies just don't care. Because if they did, we wouldn't be seeing the turn. We wouldn't see the turnover because they'd be mm-hmm. spending more money on their employees than on the all these other costs for getting new ones. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't take that person's salary and spread it out amongst you, right? No, no, of course not. (laughs) No, no, no. It was recorded as a saving, you know, it's like uh, in the budget, it's underspend. And unfortunately that underspend is, is also a question of really reprioritizing the work and and you you reduce output you you make what you think are the best judgments at the time but even the management in my experience the management still penalized me on what i didn't deliver versus what i did deliver given those constraints but that's why i'm not there anymore you know literally it's and they probably looked at it your fault that the person left in the first place even though it was the conditions that you were given to operate in well, they complained about the company. I mean, I took the exit interview. Guy mm-hmm. said that they weren't getting, they didn't see a quick enough path to progression. And that's the nature of a large organization that is relatively inflexible. You'll pick up a lot of skills. You'll rotate around. But generally speaking, it's, if, if they're not growing fast, then you find that invariably you'll you'll get a saturated middle management and even the middle management there's nowhere for the people below them who are ambitious to go upwards <laughs> until enough of the middle management leave through attrition retirement and just rotating out so 
Mm. It's really the old phrase, stepping into a dead person's shoes. But yeah, I mean, that that I could uh, I could talk about till the cows come home, and probably shouldn't, out of respect to my former company, because they were there were positives and negatives as well. So it's and it's usually around who you work for, because especially in large organisations, that's that's the key is getting serving great great leaders. So, so I'm going to make another plug at improving accounting uh, education. Go for it. This is part of the education that accountants are given, right? What was the training we received? That's exactly the, the education that was received in school, as opposed to looking at holistic costs and more on the MBA model, even depending on how you look at it. I did an, an, a master's of international management where we, I did an entrepreneurship focus. So I got lots of every, a little bit of a lot of things, but there's almost no way to synthesize this into a running the company simulation. Mm. So to look at costs, human resource costs. So this is going to take another generation or two, in my opinion, but the model is broken, in my opinion, and people are talking with their feet by leaving companies and you've got a new generation coming up saying, it's not the money. It's not the title. It is my quality of life is going to come first and the quality of life with my family. And that's what's going to drive change because they, they, there's too many of them doing that. And companies are saying, wow, we have to hire somebody. So we better go get these people and give them quality of life or they're not going to yeah, stick around. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur, he, he described he described a lot. He had a different view on employment, especially in corporates. He referred to it as modern serfdom. And, you know, when you think about your time is your most important resource, giving up so much of it, especially when you're doing unpaid overtime to try and meet objectives that are really yeah. a lot of the times way beyond stretched is 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 very challenging and looking back i i kind of question my intelligence having put up with it as long as i did but you do things because you you feel you buy into the culture you become a good corporate citizen and you try your best and ultimately you get to the point where you think if it's not appreciated you you, you don't want to be somewhere where you're not valued and that's what it comes down to i i I agree. So I look at my time with corporate America as getting a paid education. Yeah. I, one of the things that constantly shocks me is the lack of the, the level of not professionalism with people that I work with who have not worked at large corporations. I was spoiled. I worked for companies who hired the best from the best schools and they were all bright. They all got it. They were all able to articulate they all were able to learn quickly in one, maybe a second try. And, and so I got to learn a lot and I got paid for it really well. Would I go back there now? I would, but more on my own terms. You know, going, no, I won't travel the way I did. Well, now we've got a lot more virtual stuff that's accepted. Yeah. Anyhow, I I agree, but so I try to put that positive spin on my time with corporate America. Yeah, yeah, and and we all have our war stories, I think, and I guess looping it back in because I think ultimately, sorry, I'm I'm going off on a tangent, but yeah. this is really interesting, <laughs> you know, because it it reminds me of the phrase, and I'm going to quote Solomon, get biblical on this, is that most business problems are actually people problems and most people problems are actually because people don't behave like people. And that's what it comes down to ultimately. And <laughs> this is really cool because we're talking, I had an agenda to talk about your expertise, which is cash flow, and then my background, which is digital transformation. And it, it does come back to the people because if you have people who work together and are cohesive and you're all pulling in the same direction, Things do get done. They do, but let me let me pull it back into cash flow. All right, go for it. I wrote an article that says, "Keep digging. Your problem isn't what you think it is." 
Mm. Which means what? Meaning people think, and it's a cash flow article. They say, well, I need more money in my bank. It's because of this, that, or the other thing. And yeah, okay, it's your accounts receivable. That's fine. Or it's your inventory. That's fine. But why? Why is your inventory so high? Why aren't your accounts receivables? But why are they so high? And sometimes the hidden issues are the people. It's... (laughs) I, I watch a show with Gordon Ramsay called, I don't remember, Rescue Kitchen or something like that. Every single time there's people problems, that's the problem. The restaurant's failing. That's the reason they have bad cash flow. Mm. And yeah. they have to fix the people problems because it directly relates in a much deeper way than any digital transformation prog- pro- program is ever ever going to impact yeah absolutely and i have to say brilliant tv show it's it's fascinating how you see what happens usually it ends up being that there's a really really bad chef who doesn't care about cleaning the kitchen keeps food longer than it needs to be till it's moldy and there's just all these sort of horrible things that happen and usually they end up sacking the head chef get someone else to take over and then the problem seems to be solved if you remove that person who's kind of giving the problems and sometimes it's even the owners when they're trying to do the job of the maitre d but they're not very people oriented and they're not customer focused it causes problems for the business because customers get upset and then they'll go it is and and in restaurants it's much more of a direct feedback model yeah right come in you eat you go never coming back by the way, it's Kitchen Nightmares. Right, I just brilliant. looked it up. So if anybody's oh. watching and wants to see a microcosm of business, it's a great show to watch. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you for getting that. I guess when we talk about early value realization and tangible ROI, a lot of the times a lot of projects need to be able to start getting money back and realizing value early in order to be self self-funding so have you any have you seen any strategies that work in terms of how organizations structure their projects to ensure the right priorities are set well first of all i highly recommend against marginal rois Mm. right i mean if it's not a significant roi why are you trying it because you and i both know it will cost more take more time and probably not get you really 100 percent of the results you're estimating so you've got to have a lot of room to come in to make it worthwhile okay Mm. so that's number one number two is it depends on the organization there is so much low-hanging fruit in so many organizations still today even One was the PC revolution. It was in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, that gives you an idea of how old I I am. As I was part of the PC revolution, installing unnetworked PCs on people's desks. Hmm. But it doesn't mean they digitally transform them. I'd just be doing email, which is not digital transformation. So in my mind, looking at low-hanging fruit is always the first place to go. And I don't like your question, actually. It's not the question, but what it represents is that the short-minded, it has to fund itself Mm. from the beginning. I've worked on some really big system implementations that have taken two, three years from planning to turning on the light switch that there is zero return on investment during those two or three years. But those are the biggest changes that you get is having a truly massive re-engineering of how you do business. So Mm -hmm. a company's got to take stock and say, listen, we are either going to suck it up and we're going to do a large transformation we're going to take a piece and transform a piece of it and then Mm. do the next piece and then the next piece so we can lower our risk profile. That's my opinion, Dante. 
And so I guess you could say, oh, David, you're answering my question because I said, how do you do it with the big project? Break it up into pieces. But it's sometimes very difficult because you end up with a dead end. I'm digitally transform uh, transformed. You're not. And so I've got my output that you're going to have to completely relearn how to deal with, if at all. And we, you might not be able to. Mm. I don't know if this is a helpful answer or not. No, uh, it, I think it is. It gives me at least, it's a great perspective and, and one that I guess is nuanced with the fact that a lot of the time the expectation is that you should you should look for those items. It's almost like taking a very non-holistic approach to investment appraisal. So when you think about getting self-funding earlier, it's almost like the payback method but not looking at the overall net present value return of the investment and also looking for tactical. I mean, there could be opportunities, but if you chase every opportunity just on the basis of how much return it will get, it might not align to the overall business strategy and you could be losing even more in the long run. I get where you're coming from. So so uh, to me, it's a intellectual honesty to ask yourself, does this project have a piece that you can get uh, upfront starting to get a return on investment? Mm. But a lot of times what I've seen in large corporations, that people create the answer to fit what's wanted, not reality. I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen that. Oh, I have. And let me give an example, not mentioning any names, but... Um one of my previous companies invested heavily in a new innovation, shall we say, business model, and they were growing through experimentation. And this is where my kind of passion for Agile came into play was around, you know, it was the cool, cool kids on the block type business model where people were investing in the latest technologies, latest techniques, having daily stand-ups, they had Slack, which I didn't even know what it was until I did coding. And, uh, yeah, things – and uh, you go into their businesses, and this was coming from a traditional carpet company, ugh, company where, you know, our carpets hadn't been replaced since the 80s. So that tells you the – and then you go into their buildings, and it's like it's all modern furniture, equipment, whiteboards, TVs everywhere, glass offices – where you can see people doing their little huddles and strategy sessions, little honeycomb seats where you could work in isolation if you wanted to away from the open plan office. So, it, and, and yeah, literally whiteboards everywhere with sticky notes and agile, agile diagrams, etc. lots of process maps and everything. I was overwhelmed and I wanted to be in that part of the business. But yeah, it's uh, coming back to that example was, all of this money was invested with people using agile techniques to launch experiments on business models. And they were running so many different trials and then working in a certain way. The problem was it was being funded by a traditional part of the business. Eventually they had enough in that business where it was reaching maturity. It was making money. But to actually merge the culture, they'd all they'd basically gone and created their own way of working, their own culture, move fast, fail fast, break things. But then coming back into the traditional organization proved problematic because it hadn't been hadn't been factored in when they were setting up this innovation hub of their business. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I didn't experienced that through internal innovation. I worked for a company, very small startup that was bought by a larger start startup that was then purchased by a fairly well-established company. And every single step of the way, the innovation got killed just a little bit more. Mm. And yeah. the, the merging of cultures is extremely difficult to do. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was great. But yeah, there was a thought process that maybe should have should have been thought of in terms of how do you integrate back into the fold once you have some proof of concept and then maybe a hybrid model going forward. I don't think there was a strategy 
about that. And that cost a lot of money to try and integrate the two sides of the business together. I think eventually they decided to to level up the <laughs> change the culture of the traditional organization before merging them. But again, that required a lot of investment and a lot of culture change as well. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it was, um, I guess the thing was, it was like you, you, you focus on one bit, but you don't think of how it should be integrated back in the fold. And I think it could have been done a lot quicker if they'd actually considered the impacts on the the traditional part of the business. But, you know, yeah. um, I guess there's always 2020 in hindsight. Well, you know, I, I worked at a business that was analog, traditionally, very well-known business. And if somebody goes, looks up my profile on LinkedIn, they can probably tell which company I'm talking about. Long-time analog business that had to go through digital transformation on their product line. And I was brought in by somebody I'd worked with before who said, David, they, they have no idea. I came from a technology company background. And he said, David, can you help me out? And I was put in charge of Latin America. And we literally, after a year, went back to my boss, the guy who I was friends with, and his boss, and said, I can't do it. This is going to have to be fundamentally changed. There's, like you said, two competing cultures. Mm -hmm. And so they let me back out and said, go come back in a month with a plan. And long story short, it was about a year-long changeover very difficult people had to, having to be laid off having to hire new people and it's it's brutal it really is but you've but at least they didn't the, the experimentation on trying to just sort of like mold a little bit was very short-lived and very inexpensive it, that was the year and all they paid for was me that i was their experiment and it's one of the toughest things any company needs to do. And there's no easy answers and people are going to get hurt. Because I can guarantee you the company you're talking about, even if people didn't get laid off, they're uncomfortable. They didn't like it. They complained all the way to retirement because they, they wish they had it the way the, the old way was. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, economic transformation is never easy. No, there's always winners and losers. There's people, I, I find groups of people and you can see it when you've been through a few of them. Some of them understand the sea change and they, they are ambitious and they, they actually position themselves to benefit from it. Other people go with a flow and then other people either actively or passively resist it because it, it, it disrupts everything that they did before, whether it's changing location and then they're having to have a longer commute from from home or or god knows what else but yeah it's there's a lot of <laughs> again coming back to that thing about people problems it's there's a lot of human the human element that comes with transformation that needs to be considered it's not as simple as just launching a new system and it's a technical problem it's more than that it's always people people issues are number yeah. 1 yeah, yeah. If you don't have people on board, I spent a lot of time traveling that year. I, yeah. I think that was the year I took forty international business trips. Yeah, yeah, and, and it doesn't help your work-life balance. And I imagine your home life is challenged by it. I, I know. Oh, yeah. Yes, I have a, I have a very supportive family, and I was very fortunate that the people I worked with became like family, not just to me, but my wife knew them. I had a daughter born and she got presents from all over Latin America. And so she grew up with these people for a few years, but it still doesn't substitute. I wouldn't go do that again. There, it's, there's no way that would happen. Even without the ability to do video and Zoom, I, I look back and say, yeah, it's, it's, it's not worth it. It just isn't. Yeah, and I completely agree. There's more to life than 
than a single job because there are so many opportunities as well, I would say. Thanks, David. And I guess in terms of, I think we covered a lot of things (laughs) on a different level regarding digital transformation. But I guess one interesting one for me is KPIs. And how important is it to track business cases against KPIs? Given what we've just discussed, what are the most important effective ways to do it do you think wow that's a loaded question i think every business needs kpis Mm. and the question is what what's appropriate for that particular business for some companies it will be sales because they do cash basis accounting they've got high profit margins and there's this really great correlation between just make the sales and you'll get money in, and it's enough money to to spread around. Knowledge-based companies come to mind. Most companies, though, there are other more important indicators in my mind, and it really just depends on what, and it gets even more so when you get down to the departmental level and what your goals are as a business. We don't talk about very often nonprofits, but te- let me tell you, Nonprofits have the exact same cash flow issues as everybody else, even if they're well funded. Hmm. And so they have a different set of KPIs, how much how many lives are being impacted or something along those lines. Am I answering the question? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me throw out a couple that I think are the most important. One is your margins. You need to know what those margins are and have a target for your margins because that tells you how much money is going to be left over to pay for the rest of the business. Now, you combine that with sales and it tells you how much money you have to spend on everything. But usually, especially shrinking margins are an early warning indicator that something's wrong. Mm. So, So that's one. And to me, an overall, another overall business indicator would be cash flow as a KPI and knowing, and I'm not going to say it always has to be positive because there's lots of business out there that the goal is literally to lose money, to lose cash, right? You raise a bunch of capital so you can spend it over time, Mm. but you need to know what that burn rate is or your build rate. Mm. So in in my mind, every single company should understand their cash position. Why? Because it's the change. And when you're getting down to a certain level, whether your goal is to lose money for a while and then turn it back around, you, you mm. think of Uber, you think of other startups, that, but that's the one that comes to mind. They have a certain amount of cash they can burn because they raise huge amounts of money in the stock market, but eventually they have to start generating cash. Yeah. You better believe they know what their burn rate is and the projections, what they are, and when they think they're going to turn around. Every company should have that for how much cash we want to have in the bank. And are we, are we earning or, or are we generating or losing cash over a period of time? So there you go. Those are two key KPIs in my mind. Brilliant. Thank you, David. And then coming to project-related failures, from your experience, what are the most common cash-related reasons for the failure of transformation projects? You know, Dante, the only thing I've ever seen is people failures. I've never seen a failure because they ran out, people run out of cash. Sorry, I... So that's not a good answer maybe for you, but I'll tell you there's two or three ways. It's the upfront planning is unrealistic and it's either, yeah, yeah, that's one. They don't have a good implementation plan or they implement and there's the, the adoption is way more difficult than anticipated. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And when you're looking at projects holistically, yeah, some, some projects run out of funding before they actually realize the benefit, but ultimately there's a reason why they ran out because it could be, you know, it's not, it's not the, the cash is the indicator in this regard. 
is the execution of the plan or having the wrong plan or whatever, not, not actually understanding what they're trying to do. So missing a strategy. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever seen a project that you know is underfunded up front? Not intentionally. (laughs) Well, that you don't believe anybody intentionally underfunded it. Is that what you mean? Yes. But you've seen it from day one. You're just sitting there going, there's not enough money here. I've I've seen projects like that. Yeah. And usually it's because they've underestimated the scope because the analysis hasn't been fully thought out because Mm -hmm. they're, they're usually in a rush to try and deploy a system. So they run on estimates. And sometimes, you know, when I go to the board, I don't ask for all the money up front. I ask for some time to do a put a case together and do the analysis and then come back with an actual number but sometimes also there's a lock-in with the with the funding where you request the funding and it's already been determined the year prior so budgetary constraints again and in order to sometimes i've even had projects deferred a couple of years because other projects have come up asking for more cash which has meant the the allocation of money towards projects has been has has meant that certain projects have to be deferred right and in none of those cases is it a failure of a, an ongoing project yeah because there's not enough cash it's it yeah it's i don't know i guess i'll leave it at that yeah, yeah, no, no. And it's not bad cash management cash is outside of projects. It's yeah. funding it. It's funding the salaries of the extra resource, the the systems, the licenses and whatever you need to get that delivered. So yeah, no, that makes sense. Thank you. Well, it answers the question anyway, so that's great. And I guess linked to that then, how do you think businesses should proactively address the pitfalls of failure to ensure that their projects succeed? Well, again, I think this is a human resources issue. Mm. And when we look at the pitfalls of failure, the question is, in my mind, is always going to be, is the person running the project thinking holistically? Mm. And are they able to communicate to all stakeholders? Mm. that's another key issue is fundamental communication and it's funny just so everybody knows when i was in graduate school it's like okay i got to take a human resources class fine i'll never use that and i'm i'm a hundred percent convert to this whole issue of human resources and communications but the holistic there's a focus oftentimes on can they communicate with senior managers but the senior managers are not going to be the ones who have the project succeed or not. It's the core team and those individuals within an organization who are impacted, their mm. jobs, their day-to-day jobs, they're the ones who need clear and ongoing and as transparent as possible communications about what's happening. Yeah. So those are the types of things I think mitigate potential failure you talked about you had somebody leave on you and it was because of the company well okay that's the other thing i i imagine that's an issue in many projects and so then the question is what is the company doing holistically outside the control of the project team to make an environment under which the employees thrive because mm. that's the thing that everybody's trying to do is just and to have a good life according to their definition. Mm. We're no longer trying to feed ourselves, right? That used to be the, the, the stick at the old factories that that's mm. how they got people to work for 18 hours a day for pe- petty wages because mm. they had to feed themselves and clothe themselves and shelter themselves. We've moved way beyond that, but yet sometimes it feels like the thinking has not. Mm-hmm. No, agreed. And I think, yeah, we can, that touches on a completely different topic, but yeah, yeah. I think you're right. It's it's definitely about um, 
getting that alignment across the organization and having the right leadership in place to ensure the success of the project. Just so that uh, coming back to my earlier point, everyone's pulling in the same direction. Absolutely. Even when it might not seem like it. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, it, you know, you're talking in one direction to the senior management and another direction to the junior management or not junior management, whatever, the the, the people impacted. Mm. But hopefully they're all on the same page. And I'll tell you one other thing, Dante. I'm hoping that it's you as the project manager isn't acting as the sole voice within the organization. If senior management isn't helping, that's a sure formula for for failure. Also, I traveled once with my boss's boss. My I, I had a great relationship with my manager. I'd worked with him at two other companies. He didn't want to know. He didn't want to travel to Latin America. Mm-hmm. But his my boss's boss, so this is a senior vice president of the company. Yeah. He traveled with me to the three major markets where the majority. Well, no, all the employees with we, we flew in the other employees. He came in and he presented and he was a presence to say, we need, we're behind this. Mm. So if that's not happening so that senior management is helping drive the alignment for these projects, boy, oh boy, that it's not necessarily a recipe for failure, but it's surely not optimizing your opportunities for success. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And and people can step up a lot of the time in those situations, but it's not ideal if the person who is meant to be driving the leadership is struggling with that, should we say, getting the alignment across the organization uh, among their peers, getting the buy-in, making sure that their team members are supported every step of the way. And if not, that they can actually be guided so that if they need to back off for maybe a month, two months, whilst other parts of the organization are getting themselves ready to accommodate, that's that's something that just needs to be managed rather than put pressure, unnecessary stress everywhere, as long as people understand where they are in terms of what they need to achieve and what is blocking them and what is the path to overcoming those uh, obstacles. It's, it, it saves a lot of sleepless nights, put it that way. <laughs> it does. And I'll bring it back to cash flow. It costs extra money to do this, mm-hmm. right? He wasn't flying coach class down to, you know, these are expensive flights, expensive hotels. We brought in team meals. And, and so, I mean, that's a very expensive, but the same thing here, you've got extra salaries. If you're delaying, you said delay for a month or two. That's going to cost you more money. A lot of times these types of meetings should be supported by something or another that shows appreciation for employees. I don't know what that is, a T-shirt, a mug, um, a. but it, there's always a little bit of expense, which oftentimes isn't thought about when you're trying to do some budgeting. Yeah, no, agreed. And a gesture, even a small gesture goes a long way. Mm-hmm. as a thank you and it does foster that loyalty and i've seen i've seen that i've been fortunate enough to be the recipient of that this year when i closed out a project and moved on to another one so mm, it does great. happen yeah and, and i'll I just thought of something that's counterintuitive where when you're tr- what you're looking at is productivity but it goes back to what we talked about of quality of life i i have been in some organizations where we'll do a late afternoon meeting, but the the meeting will end half an hour, an hour. It's not a long time. It's not a half a day before the end of the workday. And it's a, this is a lot. We, we, you're free to go home at this point. Not everybody chooses to, but to be able to absorb this and talk about it and be able to digest it and come back in tomorrow morning or on Monday morning, if it's a Friday, ready to go. And yeah. certainly time off is a huge incentive to people. The, to, that's, it, it's not a trinket. It's a real contribution to somebody's quality of life, having an extra half hour or an hour 
at the end of a day. Yeah. Yeah. That, that in itself is a real, not a real gesture that is tangible and, and people can appreciate again, like at Christmas, which is coming up very soon. You can, uh, you can let people off the half day and just say, take half day off on Christmas Eve or the first day before you shut up for the holidays, you know? Right. It's the unexpected, right? If it's planned, if it's in yeah. the corporate calendar, well, of course, that's, yeah. that's your right as an employee. But when it's unexpected, <laughs> then it feels like an act of generosity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 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 And, and those are the things that really should be, should be encouraged more. Uh, yeah. Coming up on. Thank you very much, David. I mean, it's um, it's been really an enlightening conversation. Just to wrap up, do you have any projects you're currently working on you'd like to share with the audience? I'd love to. I am working on recording and putting out to YouTube all of my cash flow strategies. And a, a lot of them, the majority are also profit improvement strategies simultaneously. And so right now I'm up to 210. Now they're not out there on YouTube yet. I've only got about five on YouTube, <laughs> but I'm trying to get, uh, right now it's one a week. I'm trying to get up to two, three, four. I want it to be done with by the end of next year. Mm. And that is, I'm giving away all my knowledge. So if you want to understand cash flow strategies that work in small, medium-sized businesses, but I learned most of them at large corporations. So large corporations actually use a lot of these. Go to my YouTube YouTube channel. Dante, will you put that in the notes for the podcast? Definitely, definitely. Right. But just search David Safir, David, obviously how it's spelled, and Safir is S-A-F-E-E-R, and you'll find me on YouTube, David Safir Cashflow, if you want to. But I'm I'm really enjoying the project. I'm going to go record a couple of videos right after we get off today. Brilliant. Thanks, David. And I'm going to subscribe as well as share the link in the show notes. So don't worry about that. <laughs> okay, great. Brilliant. David, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you very much for your insights and being on the show. And hopefully we can, we can have another conversation once you're finished with your project. I'd very much welcome it. So that's uh, great. Thank you, David. This has been Business Breaks. You've been listening to David Sophia and myself, Dante Healy. David, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dante. Business Breaks, all things business podcast with Dante Healy and John Byrne.